You know, when we look at God's word, I think sometimes we, we, try to, um, we try to make it less exciting than it really is. God's word is filled with messy people. And God has a rich history of using messy people because that's all he's ever had to use. And you and I are far more messy than we'd like to uh, take credit for. This morning we're going to look at uh, the, one of the first interactions between Jesus and Peter. And one thing, I guess one of the disciples that I probably, maybe like many of you, kind of identify with more than anybody else would be Peter. Peter's the ready, fire, aim type personality. And whether we like it or not, Peter made a lot of mistakes, but the one thing that we can say about Peter is he was always out there. He was always first. And my coach used to tell me, if you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake at full speed. And Peter was consistent in doing that. He was a risk taker. Uh, Let's take a little poll before. How many of you guys have ever eaten an egg? Most of us, right? You're like, wait a minute, Monty Hall, are you (laughs) you about to give us an egg? No, most of us have, but you ever thought about who was the first person to eat one? That was kind of risky, wasn't it? It's common now, but I guarantee you it was two rednecks from Doherty County. (laughs) They're walking in a field, and they see this little white cylindrical object fall out of the back door of a chicken. And one of the old boys looks at the other one, and he says, I bet you won't eat it. (laughs) I bet I will. And he's like, it's good, you know, now we all eat eggs. Like, it's just kind of, it's just common. When I was out in, um, out in Arizona, they have what's called mountains, okay? Um, we, have, we have curbs here in, in Albany, but they actually have, like, legitimate mountains. I asked, I saw a mountain range. I said, how far away are those mountains? And the guy said, uh, probably about 70 miles. And I said, seven zero? Like, seven D? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. And I thought, whoa, they've got to be huge when you get up there. Well, people run, and they, it's called hang gliding. They run, and they jump off the mountain, and, and they glide down. What's the goal of hang gliding? Does anybody know? <laughs> See, you're saying to fly, but the answer is to live. <laughs> like, you've got to look a little further. And I'm already living. Like, right now... I've never been living any more than I'm living right now. I don't have to go and jump off a mountain under a paper Dorito and hope everything works out. (laughs) Well, Peter's that way. Peter was constantly taking risk and taking chances and doing things no one would do and saying things that no one would say. And sometimes it would get him in trouble. But you know what God did? Listen, God redeemed that quality in him to change, help change the world. And we're here today partially because of the civil disobedience of the Apostle Peter. And I love that about that. I hope that you and I would get to a place where we say, Father, help us not to live tasteless lives and colorless lives and that we would trust you for the impossible. And when somebody says, you can't do that for the kingdom, say, why can't we do that for the kingdom? It's not we can't do that. It's why can't we do that for the kingdom? We begin to think exponentially where we can just not reach our neighbor, but we begin to reach our neighborhood and our community with the gospel. So we'll meet together in uh, uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing into him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them, and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him, Jesus, to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed such a large number of the fish that the nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were absolutely astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Um, If you're anything like me, I, I grew up thinking when I would read this passage that this was the first interaction between Jesus and Peter. That this was the first time that they met. And if, if you read God's word the way that I read God's word, I like to, I'm visual, and so I like to put myself there. What would I be seeing? What would I be hearing? What would I, what would I be uh, experiencing? So you see Simon there. It, I mean, guys, you know, there's nothing more embarrassing in the world than going fishing and not catching anything. I mean, can you imagine a professional fisherman watching, like, a professional fishing show and the whole episode? You don't even catch a bite. You just look at the camera and say, tune in next week. Maybe we'll get them. (laughs) This is where Peter is. And so it wasn't just the humiliation of not catching anything. You understand this is his job. And if you don't catch any fish, you don't get paid. And so not only do you not get paid, but you don't have any fish to bring home for your family. So unless you've got some type of reserve or some type of money or some type of food that you've salted and dried, your, your family also won't eat that day. And so there they are, they're, they're, they're cleaning their nets, and I love that the writer of this gospel says that there were two boats. You ever wonder who, who the other boat belonged to? And Jesus systematically walked up to Peter's. It wasn't just by happenstance. He did it very intentional because he knew that Peter was going to make a big deal out of Jesus, and Jesus was going to use Peter's life to grow the church exponentially. But this is not the first time. The first time that Jesus and Peter actually meet each other, if you remember when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he walked up in the book of John on John the Baptist, who was baptizing, and his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Be baptized. And so he walks up to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus says, I need to be baptized. John the Baptist says, well, I need you to baptize me. And Jesus says, it has to be this way. So John the Baptist baptized his cousin Jesus. Says The word of God says, the spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so you see the Trinity represented, represented rather, at the baptism of Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit and the dove, Jesus be himself being baptized in the voice of God himself. So the next day, John the Baptist is standing there, and it says he's standing with two of his disciples. You understand, before Jesus came on the scene, John had this incredible, huge following. And all these people were following John the Baptist because he was saying things no one had ever said, and he was doing things no one had ever done. And John the Baptist was a really, really weird individual. He wore camel skin and and lived in the woods and and ate uh, locust and honey. He's like that weird uncle that all of us have. And if you don't have one... It's you. (laughs) The next day, Jesus walks up. John the Baptist doesn't change his message at all. His crowd has gotten smaller. His following has gotten smaller. But John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, once again, second day, who takes away the sins of the world. And he tells his two disciples to go and follow Jesus. So they did. You know what Jesus said? 
They asked him, they said, where are you going? He said, you come and see. I'm going to read you out of, you can just kind of sketch this in your notes, uh, John 1, 40 through 42. It says, one of the two heard John speaking and followed Jesus. It was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him, speaking about Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's interesting to me that Peter meets Jesus shortly after his baptism, shortly after John the Baptist had been proclaiming, there's one greater than I who's coming that I can't even untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy of that. Peter meets Jesus, and from what we understand, he makes no decision to follow him. A lot of people around the world, especially in Western culture because we live in cultural Christianity where morality rules the day. And morality will send you and I to hell apart from Jesus. You see that morality doesn't bring Jesus. A relationship with Christ brings morality. That it's not about trusting in the things that I do or the things that I don't do that makes me right with God. It's about me coming to a place where I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and repent of my sins that makes me one with him. But cultural Christianity will send more people to hell than anything else in the world. You can come here all of your life and hold all of the traditions, and it means absolutely zero on Judgment Day. And so Peter wasn't initially moved by meeting Jesus. But when Jesus steps in, he absolutely changes everything. We look at verse 3, we see that Jesus stepped into Peter's world. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things is, is that, that Jesus stepped into Peter's world. When he walked up on the, the lake that day, he didn't shout, the teacher's here, come and follow me. He didn't say, hey, listen, don't worry about those nets anymore. There's a new sheriff in town. I need you to come with me. Jesus knew what would speak to Peter. And so he stepped into his boat. You ever wonder why Peter got in the boat with him? They had already met. He didn't really fully know him. Peter was probably mesmerized of sorts. Peter was the oldest of the disciples, and we know this by reading God's word. When they're going into Jerusalem towards the end of Jesus' life, his earthly life, um, he says, go into the city ahead of us and pay the temple tax for you and I. The only reason you would have had to pay the temple tax is if you were 19 or above. And so Jesus is in his 30s. Peter's at least 19 or older. The other disciples probably, traditionally, would be even younger than that. But Jesus met Peter right where he was. Now, when we look at Scripture, one of the things that you see is that the majority of the people that come up to Jesus don't have their stuff together. And when I say the majority of the people, I actually mean everybody. Nobody comes to Jesus because of what you can offer Jesus. When I accepted Christ in June of 1992, just celebrated last, this, this past week, 25 years of being a Christ follower. When, when I came to Christ, I didn't come to Christ because I felt like I could really enrich the kingdom. I didn't feel like as a 14-year-old boy that I had a whole lot to offer the creator of the universe. 
what I did feel like is that I was utterly lost and desperate to be saved. I've talked to people over the years who feel like they have to stop doing this before they come to Jesus, or they, they have to maybe do a better job of this, or maybe I want to clean up my act, or I, I want to stop doing drugs, or I, I want to stop looking at pornography, or I want to make things right with my spouse or my family before I come to Jesus. And, and what happens is we, we put things out of order. God brings order to the orderless parts of our lives. He makes sense where nothing makes sense. And so we don't come to Jesus fixed up and and all he has to do is give us a little polish and a spit shine, right? We come to Jesus absolutely desperate and in in deep need of him. And all it takes is the admission of that. And that's the hardest part. Pride keeps more people from following Jesus than anything else. There are people in this room today, not that I know who they are, but the Lord does, and you know who you are. There are people in this room today that have lived as Christians all of your adult lives, and you know that you don't know him, and your pride keeps you from humbling yourself and confessing him. And here's what I'll tell you. You're not the only one. And you never know what God wants to do through your life and in your life to affect and infect the other people around you who also need to make similar decisions. Jesus changes everything. Not only did he step in Peter's world, but he also steps in our world. The second thing we see is that Jesus sees past the crowd and he sees individuals. We spend all our life for the bigger and the better. We want more followers on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And and we want to rise to a level of importance and make sure that people are following us. And it's it's always peculiar and beautiful when you look at the Gospels and you see that Jesus moves through the crowd and he sees individuals. With the woman with the issue of blood, think about this. He's passing through this crowd. Everybody was touching him, but she touched him with faith. He stopped and he talked with her. He, he's this large crowds following him. And so Jesus understood the acoustic uh, qualities of, of water. If, if you ever want to tell a secret, don't tell a secret standing in a lake because it carries. Okay, that, that's free. That's not in your notes. I don't see where that tied into the sermon at all. So Jesus says he gets in the boat, pushes back, and he's teaching more people and his voice is carrying He's able to see more people, and more people are able to see him, and they're able to hear him. And instead of allowing the crowd to get bigger and continue to swell and swell, he looks at Peter, and he says, Peter, let's push out into the deep water. And there are times that you and I think about God and all of his power and all of his infiniteness and, and, and all of his abilities that are limitless, that it's difficult to think, that why would he care about me? Why would he care about you? Why would he care about somebody that grew up on the 1200 block of 7th Avenue who literally had nothing to offer him? Why would he care about you? And yet he does. He sees the crowd, but in the crowd it's made up of individuals. And because Jesus has created you and I to know him and to make him known with our entire life, he knows us. And there is a greatness of God. There is a, a, just an awe-aspiring nature of God. When Job started getting towards the end of his rope and, and, and going through what he was going through, he began to get, uh, I don't know if sassy is a theological word, but he began to get a little sassy, if you will. And this is what the Father said to him in Job 38. I think the, the reference is in, in your, in your uh, notes, and I would encourage you to read through these later. He says, God's talking to me. He says, do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish the rule on earth? 
Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? He's saying, Job, can you make it rain? Because I can make it rain. Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Psalm 135, 6 through 7. It says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all of the deeps. Is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth and who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. If you know the song, I'm going to ask you to sing it with me, okay? He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. He does, doesn't he? And that's the way we see God, that he's all-powerful. And he's created everything. And he's, he's, he's mighty. And his abilities are limitless. And yet he holds you. And he holds me. Just let that sink in that, yes, he, it's not either or, it's both then. That he holds the whole world together. And in him, we have our breath, we have our life, we have our being. But Jesus sees past the crowd and he sees individuals. And th those of you that are going through difficult times right now, God knows where you are. And for the record, you don't have to wait till difficult times happen to come to the Father. If God's stirring in your heart today, you need to come to him. He holds all of it together, but sometimes we get so engrossed with the infiniteness of God and the awesomeness of God that we forget that he cares for us, not just as a people, but individually. We look at verse 5, we see that Jesus always exceeds our expectation. Jesus always exceeds our expectations. The life that is dedicated to the mission of God will do far more than the life that is not. I've told you guys this before. I remember the first time I prayed. I remember my prayer. I'd, I'd broken a glow stick, and the glow juice shot in my eye. I wasn't a Christian, and so I, I prayed that God would hide me under his wings. I like God's big condor, right? Like that's, That was my prayer. It just sounded very spiritual, so that's what I prayed. I was in third grade. The next time I prayed, I remember praying. I was in eighth grade. And I remember laying in my bed one night, feeling a call to serve him. I didn't know what that fully meant. And I said, God, if you'll give me the platform, I'll tell everybody I can about you. And I meant it. I meant it with all that I was. I meant it with... Everything that I am and having the opportunity to not just be a Christ follower, but to serve you guys and to serve this community and this, this local church with incredible men and women on our team, it, it blows me away. And the minute that you and I begin to think that we deserve something or that we're doing God a favor, pride begins to swell and God resists. It says that he stiff arms the proud.
Verse 5, as Simon doesn't understand why Jesus is wanting him to lower the nets, he says, but master, at your word, I'll let down the nets. He says, when they had done this, they enclosed such a large number of fish that their nets were breaking. What, what do you think was going through Peter's mind when this was happening? What do you think he was thinking? The beautiful thing about this is this is not the last time that they would have fished all night, caught nothing. Jesus would have told them what to do. And, Jesus, and Peter would be absolutely flabbergasted at what the Christ had done. In John 21, 3 through 8, it says, Simon Peter said to them, this is after uh, Jesus had left and, and they've just gone fishing. It says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They've been there before. Just as day was breaking, Jesus was standing on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they yelled back, no. He said to them, throw your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple who Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, talking about John, it is the Lord. It said, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself in the sea. I, I love that picture. I love that he's fishing and, and nothing or next to nothing. He's out there working, and they're catching all these fish. This is a professional fisherman, and he's so enthralled with Jesus that John just says, it's the Lord. He puts on his jacket and just like thrust himself in the ocean, and the word of God says about 100 yards. He swam the length of a football field with some type of outer garment, just to get with Jesus. And thinking about the idea that Jesus sees past the crowd and individuals, when they finally get the fish in the boat, get the boat to shore, you know what Jesus didn't do? Jesus didn't admonish them because they had not started planting churches yet. He didn't fuss at them because they weren't doing the Lord's work yet. You know what Jesus did? Jesus cooked breakfast for them. He had a charcoal fire, and he says, hey, bring some of those fish. We're going to... We're going to eat together. We're going to talk about some things. Verse 8, we see that nothing else matters next to Jesus. When Simon Peter saw it at the catch that they caught back in the book of Luke, he fell down at his knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Nothing else matters next to Jesus. Professional fisherman probably bringing in the haul of his lifetime. If he had been a day trader, it would have been the best day that he had ever closed in his life. If he had been some type of salesman, he would have made more sales that would have not just eclipsed his record, but it would have eclipsed everybody else's record in, in the entire company. It was the single most successful day of his professional career, and yet it says that when he saw it, he fell to his knees. And he said to Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Now, that's not the first time we hear this. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll see the same type of thread. And it was the same verbiage usage and the same meaning in this usage in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when uh, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah says, I am an unclean man. I'm a man of unclean people. I live among unclean people who have unclean lips. You're talking about a very holy man. I don't know what's going on in your world today, in your life today, but can I tell you something? Nothing else matters next to Jesus. 
And if anything matters more than Jesus in my life, or anything matters more than Jesus in your life, that becomes an idol. In your notes, I think there's a quote, John Calvin says, that man's heart is a perpetual idol factory. Man's heart is a perpetual idol factory. And if you don't believe that, you can look back when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt and um, led by Moses. And they had seen God time and time again lead them and guide them and protect them. And Moses uh, stretches out his staff and the Red Sea parts. And they cross on dry land. And when Pharaoh's army and, and his men and the chariots begin to come after him, you guys saw the live feed, right? With Charlton Heston. You guys didn't know a camera was there, did you? But when, when they came after him, it, it says God released the waters and, and, and they were drowned. God protected. These people had just seen God do this. They get to the other side. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and within just a few days, they get anxious. And they make an idol so that they can worship him. Exodus chapter 20, we read God says, hey, don't make any graven image. Don't, don't bow down to any other God. We look at this passage, it's difficult to think that nothing matters next to Jesus. And something else is that we can't even allow something matter as much as Jesus. That nothing compares. That there's no comparison at all. And, and I'll tell you, just confession time, there are times in my life there's, that's difficult. There are times in my life that it's really hard not to hold things that are even good things up to a higher standard than they should be. There have been times I've had to come to the altar and, and confess that my family has meant more to me than my walk with Jesus. My wife, my children, even my calling. And good things can become bad things when they're placed the same or above the person of Christ. And Peter understood what this meant. It's Peter's boat. It's Peter's job. Jesus is a carpenter. He, he's, a, he's a rookie rabbi. Uh, people, very, very few people knew him. This is very early on in his earthly ministry. And yet, when they're pulling that in, Peter stops doing everything. And he falls to his knees in front of his peers. And he humbles himself. And he says, depart from me, Lord. For I'm a sinful man. I've had... Um, I've had idols in my life before. I've had hobbies that have become idols in my life. And some of you may have hobbies, and it's, it's what you think about all the time. I, I, would, I would be on a road trip somewhere, and I would look at a field and start thinking about, I wonder how far I could throw a Frisbee through there. <laughs> I know that sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. But for me, disc golf became a little bit of an idol. And I was a nerd about it. And I'd gotten pretty good at it, but it, like, it was all I was thinking about. If I would travel somewhere, I'd go 10 to 12 hours early so I could play. And I was thinking about it, just all the time, flight patterns of the disc. And I mean, I was just totally nerdy. And some of you are like, that's the dumbest thing in the world. But maybe it's golf for you. Maybe it's fishing for you. Students, maybe it's your grades. Maybe it's your athletics. Maybe it's your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Maybe it's something that's incredibly unhealthy. But anything above Jesus is an idol, and it shouldn't matter. When you guys, um, I don't know if y'all saw the Bible series a few years ago on the History Channel, but this is one of the stories that they depicted in one of the episodes. 
And I, I felt like they did a, actually a pretty good job of staying, staying close to God's word. They took some, obviously, some creative license with, with some others. But in this passage, when Peter falls at his feet, and they're still pulling the fish up, he falls at his knees, and he says, what are we going to do now? And I love how they depicted this. Jesus looks up at the crowd, and he says, we're going to change the world. And the ministry of that moment... And the mission of God, even today, hasn't changed. Because the transformative power of the gospel is just as alive today as it was back then. That God calls us to live out our faith in such a way to where we don't have to speak, but we do. I like to tell people all the time that all the jobs for silent Christians are taken. No more vacancies. The last thing we see is that obedience now precedes answers later. Obedience now precedes answers later. Second part of verse 10, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Peter had no clue what that meant. He had no idea what that meant. That probably made very little sense to him at all. And the tough thing about faith is trusting him initially when you don't know what's going to happen next. Just a few weeks ago when our lead pastor was preaching, he says that, that faith is very difficult. He, he was uh, quoting Bruce Wilkerson. He says, faith's very difficult. And the hardest part about faith is waiting. And the most difficult time in the waiting process is that last 30 minutes. The trick is, is that you and I don't know when that last 30 minutes is happening. And so God calls us to wait. God calls us to exhibit faith. God calls us to exhibit trust in him. And just like Peter, we have to obey now and trust that the answers will come later. Because if we're waiting on the answers then to obey, that's not faith. That's just common sense. But faith doesn't make sense. The Word of God says that he takes the foolish things of the world to, to shame the wise. And, and it's difficult for us to believe in something that we have not yet seen. But we see the evidence all around us. And so there are things going on in your life right now that God's calling for obedience in, that he wants you to step forward and trust that the answers will come later. And that's hard. It always has been hard. But when you realize that, hey, I can trust him because he and I have a history together. He's never forsaken the righteous. He knows what's going on in my life and what I need. And because I know he is a God in the past, he's a God in the present, and he eagerly awaits our arrival in the future, he knows what I need to do. And so blindly and lovingly and based on history, I know that I can trust him at his word. And so I'm going to take that step of obedience and trust that it's going to make sense later. And that's hard to do. Christianity oftentimes is difficult. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You understand that fear of failure will keep you from attempting great things for God. The fear of failure has paralyzed more Christians in their faith and, 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 and 
essentially has caused them to be um, immobile, terrified, stuck. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a Christ follower or a man who's scared of failing. I don't want to belong to a church that's scared of failing. Churches, we fail at anything this year. Let's fail at trying to reach people. If we fail at anything this year, let's fail at trusting God for the the awesome and the miraculous and the unseen before. Why can't it happen here? Why can't it happen with you? Why can't it happen with me? I'd rather fail at doing what matters than succeed at what doesn't. So what do you think God wants for you? should be a place on your notes, and maybe, maybe God's been speaking to you this morning. Maybe he's been speaking to you for some time. Maybe it's something that you can jot down, you, you can cover up with your hand so your neighbor doesn't see. Maybe it's something that you've been wrestling with for a short time or a long time, or maybe that's the prayer that you need to pray this morning is, God, what do you want for me, and what do you want from me? And one of the most dangerous prayers to pray is that, Father, my answer is yes. Now, what's the question? I'm going to push my proverbial life to the center of the table. And whatever you want from me, I'm all in. I'm all yours. Take me. Because we know from God's word that when Jesus steps in, he changes everything. For some of us, we are no more mature in our faith today than we were today a year ago. Or 10 years ago. Or 30 years ago. For some of us, relationally, financially, things aren't making sense and they're falling apart. And we have too much stinking pride to try to allow someone with wisdom and the heart of Christ to, to come into our life to help walk us through this difficulty. If you're going through marriage difficulty, I promise you're not the only one in this room. Satan loves to isolate you in your struggle. Because when he isolates you in your struggle, it keeps you paralyzed from stepping out and seeking help. That's not strength. Weakness is holding it in and feeling like you can do it all by yourself. We were made for community. Let your church help you. Through the authority of God's word and and through biblical counseling and prayer and meeting with someone that's going to try to mentor you into, into healthy living. Maybe for some of you, you think, what does God want from me? What God wants from you is a relationship with you. You've never fully trusted Christ. You've never fully come to a place where you have publicly declared and confessed him as Lord. And the thought of it scares you to death. It absolutely terrifies you. Because you're in a room and you think, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? How am I going to explain it? The mistake is looking at all the externals and you forget that God is doing a work in your life and in your heart. And you discount the work of God. Don't do that. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? As you're doing this, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel this morning. You're not responding to me or our church. This is between you and the Lord. Well, if I go down, what's everybody going to think? Who cares what everybody thinks? Don't 
Don't you get tired of living for the crowd? Don't you get tired of living for they? They are always going to talk. They are always going to have opinions. Who are they? I'm going to pray. And what I'm going to ask you to do is that you would respond to Jesus. We've got some of our pastors down front that would love to talk with you and pray with you. And help you know what it means to abandon yourself and and wave the white flag and surrender. And like Peter, fall at your knees and say, depart from me. And the beautiful thing about that is that Jesus will not depart from you. The moment you feel like that he's going to push you away, he pulls you in close and embrace. You were made by God, for God, to know God. Don't miss that. Every one of you. I don't care how wretched you think you are. God's got a plan for your life, and it can start today, right here, right now. Father, I pray that you'd have your way. I pray that you would move on the lives of these adults, these students, that, Father, we would take you at your word, that we wouldn't let our pride stop us from from running hard after you, that we wouldn't care what the crowd thinks, but that we would come to you humbly, broken. So Jesus, would you do what you do? Would you change lives? And would you give people the strength to follow you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.